Welcome to Sparks of History. Joining us today is Steve Oney, award-winning author of And the Dead Shall Rise, The Murder of Mary Fagan and the Lynching of Leo Frank. Uh, as we are witnessing the brutal massacre of October 7th here in Israel has been followed by an unprecedented unprecedented rise of somewhat violent anti-Semitism worldwide, including anti-Semitic rallies on college campuses. Um, Steve, having studied, of course, the Leo Frank uh, case extensively and uh, anti-Semitism from the 19, early 1900s, uh, just wanted to get your take, um, how you view the current anti-Semitic events in America. Is there anything we can learn from the Leo Frank case? Uh, how are Jewish organizations today prepared to combat anti-Semitism as opposed to 1913? Um, some are saying that education simply isn't enough to combat anti-Semitism. What do we do? How do we deal with the next generation? Just throwing out a whole bunch of questions and you know, appreciate your, your perspective on, on the events. Well, Ari, I'm glad you saved the hard questions for last. The um, Leo Frank case seems from a more innocent time, although the Leo Frank lynching, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with it, I'll just digress briefly and say it resulted from the murder of a young factory girl at a pencil factory of which Leo Frank was the manager. And Leo Frank was convicted of that murder. The evidence against him was disputed. The case was challenged up through the United States Supreme Court. And at the 11th hour, the governor of Georgia commuted Frank's death sentence to life imprisonment. And this so angered the people of a small town where the girl, Mary Fagan, had grown up that they organized this daring raid and abducted Frank from the state prison and lynched him. And there was a huge spike in anti-Semitism at the time. And that spike goes to some of the issues you raise, uh, which essentially could be encapsulated in one question. How is the Jewish community to deal with this? How... How do you address an increase in anti-Semitism? Now, I say the Frank lynching was from a somewhat more innocent time, but I do have to qualify that. There were several very bad anti-Semitic incidents in that time period. There was the Mendel Belli's case in Ukraine. There was the Dreyfus case in France. So these cases did not come out of the blue. They occurred at a time when society was in great flux, when the agrarian age was ending and the industrial age was starting. The larger population of the world was confused. And at moments like that, anti-Semitism, which I believe is always a steady underground river in our world, it breaks the surface and we have these horrible anti-Semitic incidents. And then you hope that society will calm down and that uh, things will revert to the steady state. And, you know, as to, to where the anti-Semitism comes from, God knows. Uh, I mean, I often think of Sartre's book, uh, Anti-Semite and Jew, in which he talks about um, terroir and almost, and now you've got to remember he's French, so the French are very regional and provincial, and he thinks it's kind of in the bedrock of a 
society. Uh, leave that aside for a second. The What's happening today strikes me as much worse and uh, more pervasive. I'm especially concerned with what's happening on American college campuses. I think there is um, an inexcusable uh, lack of leadership from American university presidents and faculty members on this issue. I just read in the paper that Harvard, Columbia, and Penn are starting task forces to address anti-Semitism on their campuses. That's fine. That's good. But I think, in a sense, it's a way of kicking the can down the road. The way to get at this is for university presidents to forcefully declare that anti-Semitism is wrong and won't be tolerated, and then to question the curriculum and the zeitgeist of the time where uh, the pervasive idea of victimhood and uh, DEI presupposes that uh, people of wealth, uh, people with power, Jews, are wrong. And I think that's become a form of virtue signal signaling and ignorance that has led to this pervasive climate on American campuses. And I think it should be confronted head on by administrators and faculty members because they know better. You hope they know better. And you know, with, with the Frank case, some of those same issues did rise to the fore. Uh, there was a huge debate in America's Jewish community about how to confront Leo Frank, uh, because by the time the governor commuted his sentence, two years had elapsed since the murder of Mary Fagan. And during those two years, the Frank case had become a gigantic nationwide cause celeb. And among America's leading Jews, the debate was, do we go at this and try to prove Leo Frank's innocence, regardless of his religion or uh, status in life? Or do we call attention to this as an incident of anti-Semitism and attack it that way? And you know, that debate was never resolved and people went off on their different uh, courses. I, I think in terms of tactics, it probably would have been more effective to prove his innocence as opposed to raise the specter of anti-Semitism. But that's because I, I, I want to win the case. I want to see innocent people protected. I don't want to be right. I want to be effective. And that's just me. But the, I think the Jewish community confronts somewhat the same puzzle at this moment. Um, and you know, there's just so much, and, and part of this is complicated by the, the state of government in Israel right now, where uh, the outreach by the Netanyahu government has been, I think, ineffective in the United States. And we, we have no sense of, uh, or we have not enough sense of what the Jewish state means. And um, Netanyahu has uh, been so from where I'm looking at it in Los Angeles, uh, arrogant and uh, unresponsive, uh, even to his own population, much less the outside world. Um, but it, it's a, there's an interview with Deborah Lipstadt in today's New York Times. And she said, 
she she is the she is the um envoy of uh of the administration anti-semitism envoy a, a position right and she's an author and a professor at emory university right. and um has studied this stuff for all of her life and written effectively about it and she said something that resonated for me she said when her first book came out in 2001 she never thought we would come to this she never thought she would see a moment in America where you had to have guards at synagogues and the um, threat level was so high. And the same story included some statistics about the rising number of anti-Semitic incidents in America just in the last few months and the last couple of years. And it's shocking. There's a lot. And but, you know, I, I fall back into this um puzzlement, though, about how to take effective action. I, I think there has to be more wisdom and learning and conversation. And unfortunately, this is happening at a moment also where because of COVID, people have not been seeing each other. And because of the way our media is siloed into uh, channels that tend to confirm the predisposition of the viewers, we don't have concurrence about what even the basic facts are anymore. Everyone, Daniel Moynihan say, famously said, uh, the late U.S. Senator from New York, uh, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but not to our own facts. But I think now people are um, unbothered by such a distinction. They believe they're entitled to their own facts. And it's very difficult to build consensus when you can't even agree upon what the basic truths are. So it's a it's a different place in the world. But, you know, nothing is entirely new under the sun. And I go back to the Leo Frank case. There were some similarities there in that um, the Hearst newspapers uh, covered the Frank case, not ideologically, but as an ongoing horrific crime story. And they brought all of their great uh, strength to bear. They were like the Murdoch newspapers. They sensationalized everything. And so that exacerbated an already upset population and led to some of the overheated moments. And then the mainstream American press broke down ideologically on the Frank case. And there were two versions of the truth uh, about uh, what happened with Mary Fagan and Leo Frank. And, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds about uh, the murder of Mary Fagan. It was a very complicated case. Uh, and even today, there are people who make well-informed arguments both ways. I happen to believe that the argument supporting Frank's innocence is stronger than that supporting his guilt. But uh, rational people can have a conversation about this and agree to disagree. But, you know, that's one of the spots we find ourselves in as a society, that rational people are no longer talking to each other and agreeing to disagree. And I think that's part of just part of the times. Right. I, I seem to recall uh, from the previous interview that it was the Leo Frank case that was the impetus for uh, creating a more organized uh, Jewish um, bodies like the ADL that, you know, whose mandate was to combat that. So I would assume that after all these years, uh, American Jewish community must be much more organized than it was in 1913. 
Yes, the ADL had been formed before the Leo Frank case, but it was galvanized by the Frank case. And, you know, I may be slightly underselling the importance of the Frank case and our understanding of contemporary anti-Semitism. It was not only the impetus for the ADL as it's organized today, but for the revised, revived Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan originally formed after the Civil War, when there was no home rule in the South, went out of business in the late 1860s. And then several months after Leo Frank's lynching, the Klan was revived. And so the Frank case stands as a point of uh, intersection between the worst and the best in American thinking and American society. So, and, and those two things have not gone away. And strangely enough um, and disturbingly to me, the Leo Frank case has had a resurgence in the United States, a resurgence of interest in the Leo Frank case. Part of that is because the Broadway play Parade by Alfred Urey and Jason Robert Brown about the Frank case had a very successful revival this summer and uh, got a lot of rave reviews, big attention in the press. That's the good part of it. The bad part is that Frank has been seized upon by anti-Semites and they're, you know, scattering flyers with his image and ugly anti-Semitic uh, epithets underneath his picture, scattering them in largely Jewish neighborhoods. There was a bus, believe it or not, or a truck that went around a largely Jewish section of Beverly Hills a year or so ago with Leo Frank's image on it and some ugly slogans written out beneath it. So the, the, the anti-Semitic contingent of American society has seized on the Frank case and looks at it as a, I think, an example of to be emulated. In fact, there was a um, conservative synagogue in Marietta where Leo Frank was lynched that was marched on this summer by people holding placards about Leo Frank. The, but, you know, there again, we're left with a this is a double whammy of anti-Semitism too. another thing that is part of it. That kind of anti-Semitism is coming from the right. The anti-Semitism that scares me is coming from the left. It's coming from well-educated, and it's coming from elite universities, uh, private universities, more than it is from America's land-grant universities out in the heartland. Um, and I think there has been such a overemphasis on combating racial prejudice, and I shudder to say that, we can't emphasize enough the uh, wrongness of racial prejudice, but the flip side is that um, a lot of people in virtue signaling believe that Jews, wealthy people, anyone who has power or education is somehow part of the oppressor class. And that is not only just wrong, it ignores the history that predates where we are now. And I think uh, no one can challenge the Jews in their centuries of suffering. I don't, I don't think, uh, but I don't know that that's being emphasized and taught at American campuses. Well, one of the interesting things is some of the videos that are I'm sure, circulating everywhere, but are circulating here is um, where where people are going kind of undercover to these campus rallies 
and asking questions. And, and what's, what's just astounding is the, the, the pure ignorance of the facts. I mean, these are, these are bright Harvard, as you said, Penn, Cornell, Princeton, wherever it is. And, and they, they just, they don't know what they're saying. I mean, they, they're making statements. And when you question them, what does this mean? They don't know. I mean, that's just pure ignorance or it's. Well, I lay that at the hands again of the administrators and the professors more than I do of the kids. All 18 year old kids are essentially empty vessels waiting to be enlightened. And what administrators and uh, too many professors are pouring into this particular crop of very bright Ivy League and elite college students is poppycock. And, uh, and it's, um, th there's been a, and, and part of that is this whole thing that's also happened on American campuses of moral equivalency. Uh, the, the refusal of administrators and teachers to utter words like that's wrong or that's not right or uh, hold on. Uh, we've created these safe spaces for college students where they are not challenged by the uncomfortable facts of history. And, you know, part of that is a due to a change in the way university experiences are now being marketed. It's supposed to be, you know, four years of um, discovering yourself and being who you are and finding who you are. And I agree with a lot of that, but I also think it's supposed to be four hard years in which you are challenged and um, some of your assumptions are going to change and you're going to confront uncomfortable facts that you're going to have to deal with. And I don't think enough of that is going on at American universities. That's why, as I said at the top of this conversation, the um, task forces that uh, Columbia, Harvard, and Penn have formed, that just seems to me a way of kicking the can down the road. That's this could be addressed a heck of a lot quicker than the four or five months it's going to take to do a study and release a paper that no one will read. This should be addressed daily in the classroom and uh, with tough talk from people in positions of power and authority. Are, what are they? Are they afraid? I mean, is this administrators? I think in part they're afraid, and I think in part this is a... Um, Look, I went to Harvard. I, I went to graduate school there. But I think what's happened is, um, you know, there, there's been a slow hijacking of university faculty by the left. And uh, I say that as an American Democrat and um But I think a true American liberal is open to all kinds of ideas. And instead, we've had a shutdown of open-minded conversation and discourse on American campuses. And the fact, the sad fact, is that the Jews have become the scapegoats in this conversation. And... It's, I think it surprised and shocked many left-leaning Jews, many liberal Jews. Um, and, you know, they're the historic antecedents 
uh, in the same column in today's New York Times about Deborah Lipstadt, she pointed out how many of the uh, most rigorous enforcers of the right had PhDs and were, you know, these were not um, an ignorant mob. And the same thing could be said with the Leo Frank lynching, although the, the Frank lynching, I think, comes from the opposite side of the political spectrum. But it was not a lynch mob that lynched Leo Frank. It was leading citizens of the town of Marietta where Mary Fagan had grown up. So th there's a there's a rush to judgment. There is, and it's confused and complicated now by the way the media works, the way we no longer, I always fall back on this, Walter Cronkite, the great CBS newscaster who had the CBS Evening News until he retired in 1978 or nine, he would end every telecast with the phrase, and that's the way it is. No broadcaster today would dare say those words because we don't know the way it is anymore. Or, or the faith in and trust in the, the overarching narrative has so broken down that we have many ways that, that they are. And um, I think, you know, I don't want to sound too paranoid, but I think anti-Semitism being in a sort of steady state in the world, this is not good for Jews. I think people seize upon um, this never-ending hate and find it an easy as an easy answer, find it to be an easy answer. But I, I'm starting to wander away a little bit. Um, no, but it's, it's a, I wouldn't want to have a son or daughter at an elite American university right now. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I know there's a lot more to be said. Uh, any closing thoughts? Um, you know, just wanted to keep this brief and get your thoughts. And, you know, uh, we appreciate it very much. Any closing thoughts? As well, my closing thought is that um, And the Dead Shall Rise came out 20 years ago. And when it was published, people would ask me, well, do you think this could ever happen again? And I would say no. And then I would add, well, if it did happen again, I don't think it would be a Jewish victim. It would be some sort of new perceived usurper. It'd be uh, Korean executives at a Kia plant. It would be a different ethnic group that was arriving in the United States and making a mark and beginning to assert uh, economic and cultural power. But I would revise that now and say, I do think there could be another Leo Frank lynching in America. And I hate that, uh, but I think it is sadly true. Well, again, thank you so much, um, uh, Steve Oney, uh, author of uh, And the Dead Shall Rise and uh, Unique Perspective, um, tracing Leo Frank to today's events. And again, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Ari. Stay well. Thank you. Bye-bye.